I'm going to hit the ground running because we need to get moving, and I don't want to uh, get caught up on lessons more than one week in a row, because if we do, we won't get through the book. So let's, let's get moving. I'll be out the next two weeks. I've got to find a sub-teacher for me for the next two weeks. If any of you all very, very capable men would like to step up and teach for me, let me know. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to have to start drafting people. So, but if you're interested in covering for me, I've got the lesson text, and so it won't be something you have to come up with on your own. But if you're interested in teaching for me, please let me know right after class before I start drafting people. Uh, we're in James chapter 1. We'll be starting there, as you see on the screen, starting in verse 13 here momentarily. Any prayer requests or announcements that need to be made this morning before we get moving and grooving? I know David Godwin. Uh, yes. Elizabeth, you said your is it your brother? Okay, what is his name? J.C. Norman, having a biopsy tomorrow to determine whether it's cancerous or not. Is that what it? Okay. Elizabeth Kinsinger's brother, J.C. Norman, is going in for a biopsy tomorrow. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> going in for a biopsy tomorrow. And they will be going in to uh, do a biopsy before, so they can kind of determine what kind of treatment they need to, to initiate there on that. They're pretty sure it is cancerous. Please keep that family in your prayer. I know that uh, David Godwin uh, went in for his stint uh, on, I think it was Friday. Uh, I got a call yesterday. He did make it home okay, and he is kind of supposed to be taking it easy, of course. But everything went well with that, so that's, that's good news. And uh, please keep him and his family, of course, in your prayers. Anybody else? I know uh, the Urquharts, they got uh, to Texas, and I believe everything went okay with that. They're waiting the results. They won't know until, I think, July 6th is the, the date that I, that's sticking in my head right now. So please keep the Urquharts in your prayers as well. Anybody else? Any other announcements? Let's start off class with a word of prayer. Please bow with me, please. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we could wake up again today. And, Lord, we are thankful to be able to gather together as a family here at Dalrada to open up your word. And, Lord, I pray that you guide my thoughts and guide what I've prepared so that we'll be able to open up the book of James and study from it to challenge us to handle temptations in our lives. God, I ask that you please be with uh, us as a class as we study this book. Help us to figure out what things we can do to grow in maturity spiritually before you so that we can become wiser more capable of, of talking to others, and more able to uh, be sure of our faith and our salvation. Lord, we are thankful for uh, the church here at Dalrada and all it means to us. And Lord, we're especially thinking of those amongst our number who are in need of prayers this morning and those that have uh, either lost loved ones or are dealing with sicknesses. And, and God, we've mentioned several this morning already, and we ask that you be with those that are recovering from procedures, those that are going to be undergoing procedures, and and those that will be getting results from those procedures in the days and weeks to come. Lord, we ask that you help us to be an instrument of you, that we can reach out and encourage as we're able to do. And Lord, may all those that are going through the trials in their lives uh, remain focused on you through it all so they will be able to grow and take advantage of these trials so that they will uh, help them grow instead of hurt them. God, we are most of all thankful for Jesus who came and died on this earth for our, our sins. And it's through his name we offer this prayer this morning. Amen. 
James chapter 1, as we delved into last week, deals with getting into how to handle the trials that enter our lives. Now, as you think about the trials that enter our lives, uh, trials can come in many different shapes and forms, uh, different circumstances. And uh, if you've been with us in the last two previous classes, uh, we've dealt with the beginning scriptures there of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, dealing with those trials that are really from without, uh, that kind of enter and, and beset our lives. Uh, they are things that God allows to happen. They are things that God brings upon us to help our faith grow uh, and mature. And if we take advantage and use those things properly, then we're going to be uh, growing in those trials. And we talked about the ways we can face those trials and, and make those trials become triumphs in our lives the last two weeks. This week we're going to pivot a little bit and talk about dealing and handling with temptation. Now, temptation is really a trial in and of itself as well. Uh, it can be classified as a trial. Sometimes the words are used interchangeably uh, in our English language, but really in the biblical sense, they are different. Uh, temptations are those things which are attributed to leading us towards sin and those things which would cause us to fall into sin. Uh, I say fall, it's not like it's haphazard. It's something that's very uh, volitional. It's something that we choose to do, but it's not necessarily a trial. A trial, if you see in comparison, is something that can actually be used to build up our faith. A temptation, on the other hand, tears down our faith. And that's what you see, the, the difference between the two in the biblical languages. But they are obviously very similar. They, are, uh, they both uh, are things that affect us in our lives. And so as we think about this lesson, as we go forward in this lesson, uh, I want to remember those things as we uh, kind of move forward here. But the, as we think introductory here in this lesson here, as we're faced with the different trials and, and testings on the, uh, in our lives, some of the trials come in testings of the outside and come on the inside sometimes are temptations on the inside. Uh, and the question that I have for you is, why did James connect uh, these two things? Uh, why was he involved, or why did he uh, use them both in the, the language of James chapter 1? How are they connected if they are connected? Uh, what are your thoughts on that as we uh, begin this lesson this morning? Slow moving. Well, there's a connection. There's got to be some kind of connection, as you see in the Scripture here. Uh, what is the, the difference or the relationship between them? Well, uh, the bottom line is, is there is a connection that you see even in the Scriptures between trials and temptations. And if you look at the Scripture, you're going to see a connection there between the two. Uh, you know, if we're not careful, the testings on the outside uh, may become temptations on the inside. Let me say that again. The testings on the outside may become temptations on the inside. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you look in the Old Testament, there's a couple of good illustrations that uh, have been used to kind of illustrate this connection. Uh, Abraham is one. If you look at in Genesis chapter 12, we're not going to read the whole passage of scripture there, but if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, that's when God actually calls Abraham, right? And he says, if you're, I want you to pick up everything you have and I want you to follow me and, and come to the land which I will show you. And so Abraham shows, you know, he follows God. We see the faith of Abraham as he picks up everything. He moves toward what God points him to, uh, that land of promise, so to speak. And he gets there and what's he, what he finds around him is a great famine in verse 10. And I think there where you see a trial uh, of, of God. Is Abraham going to rely on God at this point in time? Is he going to allow God to use this as a, a faith-building moment in his life? 
Well, Abraham does not. In fact, what he in, in essence looks, if you look there in Genesis chapter 12, is, is he really kind of pivots there and he allows that trial, that potential faith-building trial in his life, become a temptation. And what does he do? He actually flees and leaves the area that God tells him to go to and he goes down into Egypt, if you remember the story. And down in Egypt, what does he do there uh, with the Pharaoh? The leader, that he, he lies about his wife. Do you remember that? That's the first time he lies about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. And so there you have an issue. You see God then chastening. If you look in Genesis chapter 10, I mean Genesis chapter 12, you're going to see the chastening of, of Abraham and what actually ends up happening there for him. In chapter 12, down there in verse... Um, turn two pages, sorry. If you look down in verse... All right, Egypt, verse 14, is when they saw Pharaoh. You go on down to verse 17, what happens? Well, there is a chastening that occurs to Abraham. Now, the chastening necessarily isn't something that's, that's, that hits Abraham too personally, but he plagues Pharaoh and his household. You see there in about verse 17, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abram's wife. And Pharaoh then calls Abraham and says, what have you done to us? And there is a calling out there, of course, then that, that becomes a transitional, perhaps, an argument from trials to a temptation for Abram. Because what it did is it opened up, and, and instead of Abraham allowing God to use that famine in the area that he had promised him to live as a, a, play, a way to, to build him up, it transitions into a temptation for Abraham. And in fact, Abraham embraces it and he lies. You see that example. There's another example I'd like to point out. Actually, you could probably use this for several different instances, but Israel. Uh, Israel allows way too many times the trials in their journeys and in their life become temptations in their lives. And you think of one of the first things uh, that occurred whenever Moses took them out of Canaan. Uh, what he did uh, is, of course, he went through the Red Sea. You see that whole chronicling of that story. Israel goes through and experiences all this protection of God, this salvation that God gives on to them, uh, and leaving the slavery and the servitude that they had under the, the Pharaoh in, in Egypt. And Moses leads them out. Well, what happens there? Well, there is a trial. There's trials that begin entering into their lives almost immediately. And I'm talking post-Red Sea. Let's not get into the whole Red Sea situation. But post-Red Sea, what happens? Well, they come through that salvation through the water. And they are hungry. And they are thirsty. And they, that is a, a trial, obviously, on their lives. It is something that is trying them and is ultimately trying their faith. Now, instead of relying upon God and realizing God is steadfastly faithful to them, he is going to protect them, he brought them out of the land, what do they start doing instead? Well, they allow that trial to turn into temptation for them. And they allow that temptation then to, to become fully born, and they started groaning, bemoaning, criticizing, blaming God, and pretty much saying it would have been better off if we had just stayed in Egypt land. Do you remember that situation? In fact, almost the whole point, they began demanding God to do things for them, which we can get into a whole argument on that. But Israel obviously didn't see their place. And then, of course, that's when God said, listen, I'm going to take care of you. And he ended up giving them water from the rock. He gave them manna from above, ultimately quail from above. And he quenched their doubt. But what you see from the nation of Israel, and that obviously is not the only time there, but they allow the trials as they wandered around in the wilderness to lead them into temptation because they did not handle the temptation when it came their way. 
trials can easily uh, become temptation in our lives. And that's what we've got to understand. God doesn't want us to yield to temptation. He doesn't want us to, uh, to, uh, to fall prey to the temptation in our lives. And that's what James begins to emphasize here as we look and, and realize that if we are to mature, if we are mature, uh, we are going to face testings and temptations in our lives and remain steadfastly faithful to God no matter what. God is not, he doesn't want us to fall prey and yield to temptation. However, on the other hand, too, he's not going to prevent. He's not going to keep us from the experience of temptation. It's going to be something we will experience. If you remember the phrase that we used before, remember, we're, we're not God's sheltered people. We're God's scattered people. And if we maintain that mindset and we think about the things even that we mentioned last week, we're going to be embattled in the trials of life. We are going to have temptations that come upon us. Now, as mature Christians, what God wants us to do is face those with maturity. Ultimately, if we face them with maturity, we're going to be patient. We're going to be patient. And if we are patient, that patience is going to allow us to endure things, realizing there's so much better. And that's what we talked a lot about last week as we talked about facing the trials of life and turning them into triumphs. But as God scattered people... We've got to realize that in order for us to mature, become more faithful, become more dedicated, to have a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation and a deeper way in relationship with God, we're going to have to handle temptation. It's coming our way. So how do we handle temptation? And that's what James looks at here in these verses in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. I want to read those passages real quickly if we can uh, together. If you want to look on the screen, they'll be up there. If not, please open your Bibles. You may want to make some notes in the margins or uh, on your uh, handout there. Look, starting in verse 13 of James chapter 1. Let no man or no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down with the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, if you read this passage of Scripture, it's one of those passages that I believe... James 1 is one of, one of those passages that many people turn to in times of trials and tribulations in their lives. And James here begins to outline for us uh, certain things that should remind us and how we can handle temptation as Christians, as mature Christians. He's reminding the brethren there of some things that, that maybe they had learned before and they may not have appreciated fully at that point in their walk with God. He, he reminds them of certain things and certain facts that would hopefully spur them along to living more dedicated and more mature, responsive lives to the things that come around them and maybe embattle them on a daily basis. When you're faced with the trials, when you're faced with the temptations in life, how are we to view things? How are we to handle those temptations that come into our lives? Again, remember, trials are not necessarily bad. Trials are not those things which we perceive as being something that is unholy or something that is uncalled for or something that we should honestly dread. Because if we think about what we studied the last couple of weeks, trials, in fact, are something we should be appreciative of. We should be joyous in as Christians. Why? Because those trials help us grow and become stronger Christians. 
Uh, if we allow those things to, to manifest themselves in our lives, if we allow ourselves to become dedicated as Christians, trials aren't going to be something that we should fear, but in fact we should embrace because they're going to be something that we will uh, look to as being a, a turning point perhaps in our Christian lives that encourages us to grow in steadfastness and in patience and in purity and, and in and dedication to God. Temptations, on the other hand, are things we don't want. We don't want temptations. Now, we're going to face temptations, as I've already said, but we don't want temptations in life. In fact, we should do whatever we can to try and grow out and grow from facing certain temptations in life. And as we go through the, the, the rest of this lesson, I want you to kind of think in your minds of, of some of the things that, that you may be tempted with on a daily or a weekly basis to, to be a part of. And those things which kind of get to you more so than others. I think we all have them. There are certain things probably we struggle with more so than somebody else. Uh, as being different individuals, I think we all individually struggle and deal with certain things on our own personal level. And so as we think through this lesson on how do you handle those temptations that try to pull you down, that try to pull you away from God, that try to make you do things and be a part of things and say things and be places where God does not want us to be. And how do we handle those things? Well, James, I believe, here shows us, as you think about this, that there are three facts that he kind of portrays here in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, that helps us and encourages us uh, and tells us how we can overcome temptation. We can remember these three facts. And if we remember these three facts in our lives, and if we apply them, and when we're confronted and dealing with temptations in life, I will tell you, you will overcome the temptation. It's very difficult to remember these things and apply these things and then fall prey to temptation. What James says is, number one, you consider God's judgment, verses 13 through 16. Number two, the second fact to remember and consider would be considering God's goodness in verse 17. And then third, the third fact that helps us handle and overcome temptation, we must consider God's divine nature within And we're going to talk about those three things real quickly as we go through the rest of this lesson this morning. But these three things will help us, as James says, to to be a a more faithful, a more mature, a more dedicated Christian and help us rightly handle temptations that come into our lives. Look real quickly, the first point, the first fact for us to do is we must consider God's judgment. Now, this is a negative point, to be honest with you. As you think about this, there's a lot of... A lot of people who complain about Christians wanting to be negative, and that's all Christians are, is they're negative. They're always about don't do this and don't do that, and it's always the negative approach. Well, the problem is the negative approach actually does work. When you think of the, the bad things, when you think of the negative aspect of things, and James actually uses the negative approach here at the beginning to, to tell us how we can overcome temptation. Now, this is not where he doesn't end. He doesn't solely rely only on the negative approach here, but it is a negative approach. For us to consider the judgment of God. Because in fact here what you see is James encourages Christians to look ahead at the ultimate, the the end result of sin. And that's going to be death. You can't avoid it, is what James says. As he's pointing out here, how do I handle and approach temptation? How do I overcome temptation? Well, in your mind you think, what is the end result if I succumb and fall prey to this temptation. The end result, James says, is death. And when we act in sin, when we commit sins before God, it obviously separates us from Him. We know there is no sin with God. God is pure. God is holy. God does not 
He doesn't tolerate. He's talking about intolerance, by the way. God is intolerant of sin. And so what you see here is James reminding the early Christians here is that when you think about dealing with temptation in life, one of the biggest things to remember is the end result. What happens to those that commit sins? Well, what James says is it brings about death. Not always physical death, by the way. He is talking in the spiritual form. It's spiritual death. And that's what James is trying to encourage Christians to see is that there is a much bigger and broader picture that should be painted than just the the mere moments of pleasure that sin may provide to that individual. The the shortcut that sin may give someone in their life. It's, It's much more important and much deeper than that mere bliss that may be momentary. There's a much bigger implication of committing sin, and that is you have to face death. His words encourage us here as we think about things is not to blame God for temptation. God is holy. He's too holy to be tempted, but on the other hand, he's too good to tempt. And that's what you see here in James chapter 1 there starting out as he talks about don't blame God. God is not responsible for temptation. God is not the one bringing it upon your life. He cannot be tempted by evil, it says there in verse 13. And he himself does not tempt anyone. What he's saying there is God is not enticing us. God is not luring us to commit sin. That's not what God is. That's not who God is. It goes against the very characteristic of his goodness, which we'll get to in a second, by the way. He is too good to tempt us. He's too holy to be tempted. And then it shifts there to us as individuals. God God doesn't want us to succumb to those momentary weaknesses. He doesn't want us to allow those occasions of testing to turn into temptation. And so as you think about what temptation is, first and foremost, you've got to understand, don't blame God. Don't blame God when there's a temptation in life. Why? That's against God. It's against his character. It's against his personality. Now, what is temptation? Well, now we can go back to the Garden of Eden and start talking about probably the history of temptation if we want a history lesson. I really don't want to get into history this morning. We don't have time to to go through the idea and concept. I'll mention it, though, in passing. You think about what temptation is. Uh, One quote is that a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way that's out of the will of God. And I kind of like that. Uh, because if you think about what temptations are, it, it is really the, the unjust, the unlawful, uh, God's law that is, ways to do things. You know, we all have certain desires. We all have certain things we want to do. You just think about this. Is it wrong to want to pass an examination in school? Let's just talk about grade level stuff. Thankfully, I'm past that. I don't have to take any more tests. But was it bad for me to want to make an A on on a test and to pass it with flying colors? No, there's nothing wrong with me wanting to do that. Now, what if I were to cheat to do it? Then there's something wrong. It's dishonest. It's not correct. It's not right. It's pretty much a lie of being a part of. Is it wrong to want to eat? I would hope not. I enjoy eating. It is good to eat. In fact, there are verses in the Bible talking about the wonderful things that God gives us. To enjoy Now, is it wrong? No. But what if you eat too much? God says it's wrong. I think some of us need to watch it. I'm trying to watch it more. I don't do it as good a job as I need to. But, you know, I think sometimes we succumb to... to pro- what about if we, we got to go steal to eat? Is that right? Some people would try and justify it, by the way. Say, so, well, they've got to do what they've got to do. They have to do this. Well, 
that doesn't justify sin just because you say you think you have to do that in order to survive. It doesn't justify what's right and wrong just because of some circumstance that maybe you're dealt in, in life. It's wrong. It's stealing. It's taking something that's not yours. And you see about these, these things, and this is only, that's only a couple of examples. We can get into a couple of others as we talk about our desires in a moment. But if we accomplish these things in bad ways, we have allowed temptation to bring forth sin. If I so eagerly want to pass an examination and a test in school that I succumb to the temptation of cheating, I've allowed temptation to grow and give birth to sin. Now, we could probably parallel that to many other things in our lives, work-related, family-related. If we try to take a shortcut and we try to do something we think is, is a good idea when we, in fact, know that that's not the way that God says to go about things, We're allowing temptation to take over. We as humans sometimes view sin as being the single, holistic, just single action. However, what the scripture and what James even proposes here and describes to us is the overall kind of view that God views things more of a a process of how you get to sin. And as as individuals and as Christians, if we want to be mature Christians, what we look at is at the process of sin, and I think we can start attacking it where things start going wrong. So that we never manifest sin in our lives. We don't allow temptation to take its root and to give birth to sin and ultimately death. We don't want to get to that that extent. Well, how do we stop it? Well, James tells us here, it's a process. It's really literally somewhat of a four process, uh, four step process that we go into uh, showing and looking at the progression of sin. So real quickly, as we look at James chapter one here in verse 14, look, the first step that James kind of points out here is the idea of desire. And in verse 14, what he says is, is those that have desire, you're tempted when you're carried away and enticed by his own lust, which is the version, and I've got the New American Standard version. Some others say desires, but lust is usually the word that's formed there. Now, real quickly, I want to point out to you, desire and lust, those two forms, uh, the idea is it's actually something more than just sexual sin. Usually when we hear lust nowadays, we're always talking about uh, sexual sin. That's not what the context and that's not what this word in itself means. Lust, of course, is anything that's just any kind of desire, not only sexual passion, but it can be other desires that we have. And in fact, if you think about it, God created us all with normal desires in life. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with having desires. There's nothing wrong with being uh, having a desire in your life. You think about things that, uh, yeah. Right. Okay, well, I'm not necessarily going to dispute what we say on our English version of what lust means. I agree. Again, lust, a lot of times we think of as sexual in nature. I mean, you don't usually talk about anybody lusting the day after food. Yeah, I mean, that's not, not the phrasing that's used. So, you know, I, I'm not going to necessarily disagree. What, what George said, if you didn't hear him, is that lust seems like an inordinate amount of desire to him. And, and that may be the case. What James says, though, right here, it's not necessarily lust is the problem. In this scripture here, in, in verse 14, he's not pointing and saying, hey, you don't lust. He's saying the problem comes about when you're carried away by that lust. That's when the problem comes in, in the root. And in fact, the lust is not even sin. 
to be honest, and you look at the passage of verse 14 here, that's not what he says. James says that when you're carried away and enticed by the sin, and then ultimately, uh, then when lust has conceived in verse 15. So there's got to be something else that, that occurs besides just merely having lust. The idea of lust conceiving is the birth uh, of, of, of sin. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But uh, our normal verbiage, I agree, would say that lust would be something that's horribly wrong. Why? Because it usually means that you're looking at a woman or a man and you actually are, are lusting sexually and having pure thoughts about them. So it becomes something that's a little bit more than just having a desire. Um, so, you know, we can get into a debate, I guess, is, is what point in time does that lust become sin? You know, when you look at somebody, is that a, a, a sin or not? And we can get in. That's another debate for another day. Um, here, the first step, though, you see in the progression and the process of sin is the idea of desire. And we've, we've got these normal desires in lives, and, and normal desires are not sinful in and of themselves. It's when we want to satisfy these desires outside of God's will that becomes sinful. And that's when we get into trouble. Uh, these desires must be our servants and not our masters. You know, think about this. The normal desire would be to hunger and thirst. Is there anything wrong with hungering and thirsting? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, why? Because if we didn't hunger and thirst, we would die. Starvation, dehydration, we would die. Uh, what about the uh, normal uh, idea of uh, desire to have rest? Well, without, you know, with, without fatigue and without that un- un- understanding of what fatigue and, and tiredness occurs, uh, that desire for rest would not be accomplished. And so we would be really just falling out because we'd be so exhausted we wouldn't have that uh, the thing. So normal desires are bad. Normal desire for sex. Is there anything wrong with sex? No, there's nothing wrong with sex in its proper context, is there? No. And so without sex, though, you can even think, what's the whole point of it? Well, principally, now, of course, we can, this has been a landmark week, of course, and I'm not going to get into the landmark week and then the, well, the heartburn that I've had this week. But the idea of sex is something much more than just pleasure. In fact, if you look at scriptural, the scriptural basis and purpose and point of sex would be to perpetuate generations, right? That's why the procreation aspect is very important. And without sex, without that desire, the human race would not continue. So in and of themselves, these desires aren't wrong. It's not wrong to have a desire to have sex. But what's wrong is when we start wanting to accomplish these desires outside of the will of God. What does God's will have to say about accomplishing sex? Well, there are certain standards. There are certain things that are supposed to be met according to the, the scripture. And so when you start going outside those confines and those boundaries, that's when that, that desire and that lust becomes such, so much more of an issue and a problem in life. So what you see here, of course, is that the, the first step in the progression and the process of sin is the fact that we have this desire. God created us with normal desires, and they're not sinful in and of themselves. But when you start coupling them with the other issues and the other things that occur, it's what you see becoming more of an issue. And the second stage, what you see is deception. There, real quickly, verse 14, it's not just being uh, having that desire, but being carried away and being enticed because of or by the lust. Temptation does not broadcast, by the way, that it's temptation usually. You know, you don't have this blinking red light that says temptation, eh, eh, you know, alert, caution, temptation, right ahead. No, in fact, it looks much more enticing. It looks like something that's, that's good, that's, that's 
that's fun, that is, is okay to be a part of. Temptation doesn't broadcast itself as being temptation. In fact, what it broadcasts itself of is being accepting or being tolerant or, or all these other kind of words that we see thrown around today, today way too often. Temptation does not broadcast itself as temptation. What it does is it entices us and it lures us. The New American Standard says that uh, when he is carried away and enticed... Uh, if you read, if you listen to the, the American Standard, I mean the English Standard Version, which I read before, the idea there is the, the luring, I think is the word that was used. Uh, each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. Those two phrases are very interesting. They're somewhat of hunting phrases, uh, and they are in association with like setting a trap, baiting a trap. Or, or setting a hook is the idea of the enticement there. And you got this hook in the water. Those of you who may be fishermen, I'm not. The idea of baiting a hook and putting some kind of a, a fly or a worm or some kind of bait on that hook that would entice and get that fish interested in that and kind of get them to kind of latch on to it before they know what's going on. The idea of luring and carrying something away is the idea of baiting a trap. And so in your mind, you can just imagine like baiting some kind of like a, a bear trap in the woods or something. You've got this trap, you know, baited so that you see this attractive bit of bait on there, whether it's some meat or something else, some animal that's, that's there to try and trap this bear. He doesn't see the claws, you know, that are around that bait. He just sees the bait. And so because of that, you're focused. You're, you're really kind of uh, pinpointed in on the bait and you are attracted to the point where your own attraction to that overcomes seeing any other obstacles around it. And in fact, that's what happens. The bait becomes so attractive to us that we are drawn away, we're enticed to the point where we don't see the trap and hook around us. The bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of the sin that's around us. Think about some good examples for us uh, that you see in the Scriptures. One of the best examples that I see is David. Uh, a man who, who had many failings and falterings, but most of us know what... Uh, it's very interesting. I was, when I was studying, I got a little heading that says the great sin of David <laughs> over this, this section, which is kind of strange. I mean, you don't rank sin, you know. But that's what we perceive as being this great sin, right? That The sin and uh, what happened with Bathsheba. We see that example in Second Samuel chapter 11 there when David dealt with the idea and the attractiveness, his lust, he was carried away and enticed, most assuredly, with Bathsheba. But he did not see the consequences of his action. Did David see that because of his sin, because of the action that he was going to take, that, that he knew he was going to kill Uriah the Hittite? No, he didn't see that consequence. Did he foreshadow? Did he know the consequence when that bait was there in front of his eyes? And I hate, it feels like I'm calling Bathsheba a piece of meat, but that's not what I'm saying. When he saw Bathsheba, did he know he was going to lose a child because of that? No. Temptation didn't have this caution sign blinking in David's eyes. But instead it lured him and it enticed him. It shielded him from seeing the true consequences of his sin. And so much more does that occur around us today. We don't see what would happen because of our sin. Gives a whole new view and vantage point, I think, on what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 7 says. You know, we walk by faith and not by sight. And the idea there is, is that once we have God's word, when we really truly see and think about uh, what we have in God's word, when we know the Bible, we can detect the bait and then we can deal with it decisively. Why? Because we're walking by faith and not by sight. And so what God says is he encourages us to think much broader, much bigger as Christians. More maturely as Christians, we don't fall prey and succumb to that bait, the traps that we see around us. 
But unfortunately, that's what happens with sin, is we have this desire. We have the deception that occurs because of sin, because this bait this, it deceives us, thinking that, hey, we can enjoy this for a momentary time and get the joys or the pleasure or, or maybe get there quicker. We're deceived into thinking those things instead of realizing that, in fact, the deception can lead us to disobedience. In fact, that's what verse 15 says, that when lust has conceived, that means once it's been enticed, once it's been lured, those lusts have caused you to be carried away and enticed. Uh, It has then conceived inside of yourself and it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The idea there is that there is a, a pinnacle, so to speak, of when sin grows, it is born once these things have allowed to occur in your own life. Once we've had that desire of being enticed and cause us to be fully deceived, then we take action on that deception and that's when we disobey God. And that disobedience causes us to have sin born into our lives. Now, I think it's very interesting. James, again, here uses the, the illustration of birth. And he used, if you remember, as we talked about birth before... The idea that birth was something that uh, would be, uh, you know, helping us to understand um, things before. And the idea that, that, you know, it gives us more understanding. And here it's almost been used in some of a negative fashion here that we see that, that James uses this phrasing here now to help us understand that sin begins when we make that conscious choice to pursue our desires over God's will. We are hooked. We're trapped. And that's... When, when sin becomes part of our lives, we have chosen to disobey God and his will and we bring it into our lives. So you see in verse 15 that that's when it's born, that's when it's brought about. Christian living, we've got to understand and remember, is a matter of the will and not the feelings. It is something that we have in life and sin uh, really destroys the subservient nature that we should have to God and His will. We place our will as more of a priority and it allows us to be pulled into doing things that are against what God wants. Robert. No matter what. Yeah, it is a decisive moment. Sin is not just sin that just haphazardly occurs. It is that moment whenever we make a decision and a choice to do something that we know full and well is against what God's will is for us. You know, if we have this desire to pass a test, we are tempted to cheat. We are tempted to write the answers on our hand. We are tempted to 
um, copy a test, a previous test, or get the test results. You know, I've seen some of these movies where they go steal the test results, you know, so they, they can memorize. I don't know how they do that, but, you know, they memorize all the results. You know, you're, you're cheating in order to try and, and fulfill that desire that you have. Well, once you make a step going toward that temptation, once you take that step toward it and take some decisive action showing that you are making the choice to follow after the temptation instead of following after God's will, that's when it takes root. It is a a moment that becomes a decisiveness in your life. Now, I think we can all kind of relate to what that is. I don't think I'm speaking too ambiguously here to you. I think we all understand that there's a moment when there is still turning back. I'm not saying there's no turning back, but there is a moment there where you turn away from God. And that's what James is describing here is that once you have been lured and enticed because of your desires and your lust, you end up turning your back, so to speak, on God. And it's at that moment whenever sin is born, it becomes what you are doing, not just what you're contemplating. And so what James says here is that obviously the disobedience part here is what causes us to fall prey and to become uh, acting in sin. A uh, good point, I think, here is that the more you exercise your will in saying no to temptation, though, the more that God's going to take control of your life. That's a good flip side of this point. Is the idea of if you, as we talked about last week, you realize God's will and you kind of let God's will be the determinative factor The more you say no to temptation, the more you're not going to cross the threshold and come in here to step three. That's not going to happen to you in your life. Because you have become more rooted, more grounded. You've become more like God. The idea of the the submissiveness that Philippians 2 talks about, you have this mind like Christ had. And so you're allowing God to take control of your life instead of you taking control. But finally, real quickly, the fourth, of course, is death. And this is obviously giving birth to death, not life. And so it's a very kind of ironic uh, kind of a um, paradoxical type of a birth because in fact birth, giving birth to sin is not giving birth uh, that we would think of as being a new life or a new creature or, or something that's got many much uh, things to look forward to. In fact, when you give birth to sin, it's just the opposite. You have nothing to look forward to but death, spiritual death, even sometimes physical death depending on what temptation you're succumbing to. Uh, there, But ultimately, you're looking at the idea that wages of sin is death. Romans 3, right? Talks about that. The idea that, that when we have sin in life, it brings about death. This should encourage us not to yield to temptation. This reminder and thinking about sin and what it does to us should cause us not to yield to temptation. And God has put up this barrier. Uh, he's put up this, this idea of God's judgment to remind us of what things could occur if we choose to go down the wrong path and we choose to do the wrong things. He's put up this barrier because he loves us. He does not want us to forsake him. He doesn't want us to make it to this final tragedy, this tragic moment where we succumb to death spiritually because we've chosen to go the wrong way. God says if you want to overcome and handle the the temptations in life, let me tell you what James says, remember God's judgment. Secondly, he says, remember the goodness of God. And real quickly here, look at these points that we see about the, the goodness of God. Uh, Satan, of course, tries to convince us that God is holding out on us. He, he, he doesn't really love us. He doesn't really care for us. That's how it all began, isn't it, in the garden? You know, when you think about what Satan tried to do to Eve to try and lure her and entice her with her own lusts, what did he do? He tried to make her think that God did not care for her enough 
to allow them to have the blessings that God had, right? Oh, God's not surely going to do this to you. You know, what, why is he holding this back to you? He, 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 wants, he doesn't want you to be like him. You know, I can just see the words seething from Satan's mouth to Eve in the garden. Attacking the goodness of God that he didn't really love her as much as, you know, they thought that God loved them. That he didn't really care for them the way that God cared for them. He's trying to explain and trying to entice them to, to succumb to doubting and questioning the goodness of God. Look at the way that, that Satan attacked Jesus when he tempted him. You remember how he tempted him? Well, three times he tempted him. First of all, it was about hunger, right? Turn these rocks in, into bread. Well, Jesus was hungry. Forty days. That's a long time, people. I ain't gone 40 days without eating. I don't know about you. That's a long time. Turn these rocks into bread. God doesn't love you enough to feed you, so you feed yourself. That's what he's telling them. Turn them into bread. Throw yourself off of the temple. You know, you can call the angels to save you. God's not going to save you. He doesn't care about you. Can't you just see Satan tempting him that way? Saying, God is not, your father doesn't care for you like you think he does. Bow down to me. I'll save you. I'll let this all go away. You don't have to die on the cross. God doesn't, your father doesn't love you enough to do something else. You can just see those temptations. And that's what he does to us in our lives as well. I will hopefully get someone to pick up here next week talking about the goodness of God. But think about this week. Think about the, the ways that you can overcome and handle the temptations in life. First of all, remember the judgment. It's, it's always good to remember the negative aspect, I truly believe. But then here, think about the flip side. Think about the goodness of God and all the things that he has indeed given to you that causes you or should cause you to want to stand up against the temptations in life. Thank you so much. For